Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this episode, we are going to be taking a two-part spotlight. This is part one. We are taking a two-part spotlight on the Knitting Factory and the downtown New York music scene. This all happened um, because sometimes the universe just sends you a message, you know. And uh, I, I read this wonderful, wonderfully written article by Sean Brady, S-H-A-U-N, Sean Brady, uh, from Jazz Times Magazine called Remembering the Original Knitting Factory. I'm not talking about the commercial conglomerate stuff that's going on now. I'm talking about the original Knitting Factory, 47 East Houston Street, New York, right? And I'm going to be reading a couple of excerpts from this article. But almost around the same time that I read that article, there was this wonderfully written article about John Zorn, who is no doubt part of the New York downtown scene at that time. And this one is actually, this article about John Zorn was written by Hank Steamer, S-H-T-E-A-M-E-R, Hank Steamer. And it was featured in none other than Rolling Stone. Yeah, that Rolling Stone magazine, um, which, by the way, was started by Ralph Jake Leeson. Big, big jazz supporter. If you've ever seen those jazz casual videos, that's Ralph Jake Leeson. And um, Hank Steamer wrote this article called He Made the World Bigger Inside John Zorn's Jazz Metal Multiverse. And it... I mean, they talked to Dave Lombardo, they talked to Mike Patton, and it's it, it kind of goes as the result of the seeds of that downtown knitting factory kind of scene. And as I was reading this article about the knitting factory by Sean Brady on Jazz Times, I know a lot of these names, and so the soundtrack in my brain was a lot I could hear the music that they were talking about but that is only because I've done so much extensive personal digging to know what Wayne Horvitz sounded like to know what you know uh, James Blood Ulmer sounded like to know what Bobby Previtt sounded like to know what Ardo Lindsay Fred Frith, all these cats, William Parker sounded like. So I was thinking, you know, there's probably a lot of people that do not know what Wayne Horvitz sounds like or Bobby Previtt or William Parker, you know, or, or, or any of these cats, right? Fred Frith, you know. Um, but more than that, they may not even know. There might be cats out there who, who would be interested in this and not even know that there was a New York downtown scene. They may have thought that the New York downtown scene 
is just like all Zotic artists with that's related to Zorn, which is not true. I mean, a lot of them have worked with him, but it was an entire scene, period. And so that's what I want to share is the history of the downtown scene. Talk about some of these points that Sean Brady made in the Knitting Factory article. And I wanted to give you a history um, of like where it all started, because it's surprising. And finally, a soundtrack that you can hear for yourself and then make the judgment call. So with that being said, I want to give a precursor about the New York downtown scene. It actually describes a scene that started in 1960. That's right, one year after Kind of Blue, Giant Steps, Take Five, like the, you know, the Time Out album by Brubeck, The Shape of Jazz to Come, Sketches of Spain, all those great albums, right? Mingus Aung. One year after that, the most creative year in jazz, came the downtown scene. So the, t- the, the scene began in 1960 when Yoko Ono, that's right, that same John and Yoko, Yoko, when Yoko Ono, one of the early Fluxus artists, opened her loft at 112 Chamber Street in a part of Lower Manhattan later named Tribeca to be used as a performance space for a series curated by Lamont Young and Richard Maxfield. Prior to this, most classical music performances in New York City occurred uptown around the areas that um, were around the Juilliard School of Music and Lincoln Center. And um, so Yoko Ono's gesture led to a new performance tradition of informal performances in non-traditional venues, such as lofts and converted industrial spaces involving music much more experimental than that of the more conventional modern classical series uptown. Spaces in Manhattan that supported downtown music from the 1960s on included the Judson Memorial Church, The Kitchen, Experimental Intermedia, Roulette, the Knitting Factory, which we're going to be talking a lot more about. Dance Theater Workshop, The Tonic Club, The Gas Station, The Paula Cooper Gallery, and others. The Brooklyn Academy of Music has also shown a predilection for composers from the downtown scene. Now, downtown music is not distinguished by any particular principle, but rather by what it does not do. It does not confine itself to the ensembles, the performance traditions, and the musical rhetoric of European classical music, nor the commercially defined conventions of pop music. The only thing that all downtown music might be said to have in common is that at least at the time of its original appearance, it was too bizarre. By dint of excessive length, stasis, simplicity, extemporaneate, extemporaneate, extemporaneity, consonants, noisiness, pop influence, vernacular reference, or other purported infraction to be ha- to have been considered quote-unquote serious modern music by proponents of uptown music. Another generalization could point to it is an embrace of the created 
creative attitudes of John Cage. Though this is not universal, John Zorn in particular has downplayed his influence. That's Cage's influence. But some downtown music, particularly that of Philip Glass, Steve Reich, and Morton Feldman, has subsequently become widely acknowledged within the more mainstream history of the music. So, this kind of gives you an idea of just how old and how long this downtown scene has been going. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about the different um, kind of histories and varieties that were within this downtown scene. And as I said before, um, we're going to be talking about, I mean, we're going to be talking about everything. The kitchen sinks in this episode, folks. We're going to be talking about music. We're going to be talking about art. We're going to be talking about styles. Um, conceptualism, minimalism, performance art, art rock, experimental rock, experimental jazz, free improvisations, uh, post-minimalism, totalism. Yeah, there's a lot of great, great stuff. And its effects and its influences because it is not just relegated to downtown New York. This mentality has spread all over. With all that said, let's get to some music.
All right. So that track was Incident on South Street. And it's by none other than the Lounge Lizards, um, which included John Lurie and uh, Arto Lindsay, I believe. And then before that, we heard Petite Entree, Au Restaurant en Serregarde, from the 1991 album Dropera by Fred Frith. And uh, then we opened up the set with These Hard Times from the album Dinner at Eight by Wayne Horvitz. And you may have heard the name Fred Frith and Wayne Horvitz before because they were both members of the band Naked City. John Zorn's cross-genre-busting group. Uh, But more than that, they were very integral to, especially Wayne Horvitz, to the Knitting Factory. So the the owner of the original Knitting Factory was Michael Dorff. And um, I'm going to read you part of this article, this great article by Sean Brady on remembering the original Knitting Factory. Uh, Michael Dorff, this is in his words, he said... I did one year of law school at the University of Wisconsin in 85 and 86, and at the same time I was managing my friend Bob Appel's band, Swamp Thing. Because, I mean, Swamp Thing was really big back then, especially in 85, 86, right? That movie. So, anyway, Michael Dorff says, I started the Flaming Pie record label for them and made a compilation called The Mad Scene with bands from Madison, Wisconsin, like Phil Gnarly and the Tough Guys, Honor Among Thieves, and I decided I wanted to move to New York. Uh, I, I decided I would have to move to New York if I wanted to become a record mogul. So I borrowed some money from my grandparents and used some of my bar mitzvah savings. I was not successful at all. Now, they go on to talk to Bob Appel to get his take on Michael Dorff. The, and Bob Appel was also the co-owner of the Knitting Factory. He said that Michael and I met in Milwaukee when we were eight, but we didn't become close friends until we went to summer camp and high school together. Even at a young age, Michael had an entrepreneurial spirit. His father owned a food distributorship, and Mike would take the damaged cookie boxes to this fair and sell them. When he decided he didn't want to finish law school, he said, you should let me manage your band, and that's how the music business relationship started. Okay. So, basically, he goes to New York, Michael and Bob, uh, they, Dorf and Appel, they moved to New York, and after a few months, he really felt defeated. He was this close to moving back to Wisconsin, and he found an Avon Products office at 47 East Houston Street, and he said, I knew I had to sell stuff, and I wasn't selling records, so I thought maybe I could open a cafe slash art space, and eventually get a liquor license. I convinced my friend Louis Spitzer, who I'd always wanted to have an art gallery, to help me build the space. Swamp Thing, the band with Bob Appel, was going to call their second album Mr. Bloodstein's Knitting Factory, after a sweatshop in Wisconsin. So when they changed it, I asked, this is Michael Dorff, asked Bob Appel if he could borrow the name Knitting Factory. We opened in February of 1987. And then they go on to actually 
talked to many musicians like Joe Gallant, who is the bassist for the Illuminati Orchestra, and he said, I remember Michael Dorff as a fresh-faced Midwesterner. He got into town with a means to open a little spot, but I don't think he realized what he was about to stumble into. And then the great drummer, Bobby Previtt, said, Bob and Michael didn't know anything about the scene. Zero. <laughs> and so Michael Dorff comes back to kind of defend himself, and he said, look, my jazz was more Pat Metheny and Spira Gyra. Of course I knew about Miles Davis and the Hard Bop Cats, but I didn't know about the avant-garde scene at all. But I had this idea of a Jack Kerouac New York Jazz Club thing, and from a Village Voice ad, I contacted this guy named Wayne Horvitz, who we just heard start out that set. And it was complete serendipity. And uh, this is where it gets interesting, because Wayne Horvitz is a keyboardist, and he says, they interviewed him as well, and Wayne says, we played two very different types of gig in those days. Gigs, one, where you would make every effort to have people come hear your music, and two, gigs you played because a restaurant wanted background music. Wayne says that his assumption was that this is just a restaurant gig, so he made absolutely no effort to publicize it. He said he put together a group with guitarist Dave Tronzo, bassist Joe Gallant, and maybe Bobby Private on drums. He couldn't remember. He says, I was surprised by the place because they had no alcohol, and they sold tea and muffins. Big surprise, there was nobody there. <laughs> so, Joe Gallant goes and it says that Michael Dorff ended up paying them in dessert vouchers. It was that innocent. But at the end of the gig, Wayne Horvitz took Michael back into the back, sat him down and said, look, there's this scene happening and this is where it, this should be where it develops. So then they ask Wayne Horvitz about this and Wayne says, I asked Michael if he knew who Bill Frizzell was. He said no. I said, do you know who Butch Morris is? David Murray. John Zorn. He said no. So I said, give me a budget of $150 a night for eight weeks, and I'll book a series of duos. We'll see how it goes. And Wayne goes on to say, I don't know what got into me. It wasn't like I was asking him to pay me, but there was always a shortage of places to play for the scene. Bill Frizzell who they interviewed for this too, says that Wayne Horvitz is an incredible instigator who has a talent for bringing people together from different scenes. Th that happens in this music a lot, and it became the template for the Knitting Factory. So Fred Frith, who we heard in the middle of that set, who is a multi-instrumentalist, he's a great guitar player, and he also played bass for Naked City, says... Butch Morris and I were the first official Knitting Factory concert. They hadn't heard of either of us. They had no idea about this kind of music, but they saw that there was an audience out there for it, and they seized the opportunity. Then Greg Osby, yeah, Greg Osby from Embase, right, who is a legendary saxophone player in today's culture, was part of this scene, and he said that Michael Dorff didn't look like a go-getter. He looked like a dude kicking a hacky sack, if this gives you a visual image of Michael Dorff. So Wayne Horvitz goes on to say that Marty Ehrlich, great saxophone and clarinetist, called him up, called Wayne Horvitz up five weeks in and said, this guy Michael Dorff tried to stiff us last night. I guess not many people came. 
It was the beginning of a long-standing, fond friendship I had with Michael Dorff, mixed with acrimonious bullshit about money over and over again. So, just putting a pause here. This is a great article, because, and it's such a quick read, because they get all these folks' perspectives, from Wayne Horvitz to Fred Frith to Greg Osby to Bill Frizzell, and it keeps going back and forth with Bob Appel and Michael Dorff. So, <laughs> Roy Nathanson, uh, founder of the Jazz Passengers, says that he lived in the East Village and all of a sudden these flyers went up on lampposts all over 2nd Avenue. Now keep this in mind. This is like 1987. And he sees all these flyers on lampposts advertising John Coltrane and Charlie Parker, every famous jazz musician in history, playing at this club. <laughs> so forget the fact that it's, you know, uh, 34 years since the fact that Charlie Parker passed away or 20 years since John Coltrane passed away, there are these flyers in the East Village saying, John Coltrane, tonight at the Knitting Factory. Charlie Parker, tonight at the Knitting Factory. <laughs> so Roy Nathanson says that it was kind of funny, and within a week or two, he heard from other people that they were looking for downtown musicians to play. So now we have kind of this scene that I've talked to you about, kind of the history of it, and how it's been going on since 1960 through Lamont Young and Yoko Ono. And now we have this club and this scene for experimental kind of music. And that's the cool part, right? So William Parker, the great William Parker, who I've sung his praises over and over again on this podcast, um, says that he's involved in this. And he says that when Michael Dorr first opened up, he would call legendary New York City avant-garde musicians um, and and seen people from that scene, like St uh, Stephanie and Irving Stone or William Parker himself, and say, uh, a guy named Clifford Jordan's down here. Should I give him a gig? Or he would call William Parker and say, um, some guy named Dewey Redman is here. Who is he? So finally, <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, right? How can something so glorious come from something so just clueless? But William Parker said, look, listen, if they come down there and they look like a musician, give them a gig, especially if they're older. So Bobby Previtt says, good for them, meaning Michael Dorff and Bob Appel. He says, good for them for being humble enough to listen to someone who actually knew. They needed an identity at the Knitting Factory, and Wayne Horvitz gave them that identity. So this is where we're going to pause it. And we're going to get back to some more great music. And I'm going to tell you some more after we come back from this next set. So we're going to kick it off with James Chance and the Contortions with Contort Yourself. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. <laughs> Pleasure. It's more than pain. I 
Control yourself Hey baby You better twist it
Ah, yeah. The great Butch Morris with Othello B from his album Dust to Dust. And I think it's really cool because that track opens with what my ears feel like is the exact pitch and tone of Michael Jackson's Beat It. I can't help it. I'm, I'm, I'm a kid of pop music the way I grew up, but it's so cool to hear that sound and not just as like a tone or two before Michael Jackson and the guitar riffs and the bass lines and all that other shit. But that that same sonority throughout a whole kind of track and that's so cool butch morris othello b dust to dust and uh if you by the way if you want these tracks uh they're going to be up on our website so you don't have to scribble them down or anything like that type them into your phone just go to the website that's dr jazz podcast drjaz podcast.wordpress.com you can also find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. We're there. Uh, and spread the word. You know what I mean? We love to uh, have everybody, you know, under our umbrella. So um, you can also find us at Twitter with a handle at NDHJazz. Love to hear from you. And, uh, Thanks to everybody who's written, you know what I mean, for some kind words in the past. Want to give you all a shout-out for that, too. Uh, always love hearing from you. So, yeah, Othello B. Uh, by Butch Morris, Dust to Dust album. Before that, we heard from Glenn Branca. That's right. Before he was writing multiple symphonies with guitars and etc., we heard... Um, from the album Songs, 1977 to 1979, we heard Fuck Yourself. <laughs> Which, truly, I mean, you know, it can only happen in a place like New York, right? <laughs> ah, and then we opened up the set with, as I stated before, Contort Yourself from one of the wackiest punk jazz rock things ever. And it could only happen in New York it was James Chance and the Contortionists with their album Buy, B-U-Y. Now, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about um, the history of the scene as well as um, just some other things. So, as I said before, uh, downtown music is not distinguished by any particular principle, right? So more than a continuous scene from 1960 to what we're hearing right now is like a soundtrack for the Knitting Factory. Um, downtown music has resembled a battlefield on which, from time to time, various groups have reigned ascendant. So uh, in chronological order of dominance, <laughs> the following movements have been the most prominent movements in the downtown scene. So you have conceptualism, uh, starting with a fluxus artist like Yoko Ono and um, Lamont Young. He, you know, he's famous for Draw a Straight Line and Follow It. Robert Watts's Trace, in which the musicians set fire to their music on their music stands. Uh, there was also Yoko Ono's Wall Piece that asked uh, performers to bang their head against a wall. And Nam June Paik's classic Creep into the Vagina of a Living Whale. 
it's not for the faint of heart, folks. Uh, then there's also minimalism, right? Which is a style of music that began with the repetition of short motifs, sometimes going out of phase due to slight differences of speed and crescendoed into a movement of simple diatonic music of clearly defined linear processes. Now, some of the best practitioners of this are Steve Reich and Philip Glass, and they became the public face of the movement. Uh, but the original minimalists, like Lamont Young, Tony Conrad, John Cale, uh, Charlemagne Palestine, and Phil Nyblock, were less characterized by their music's prettiness and accessibility than its tremendous length, volume, and attention-challenging stasis. Then there's also performance art. Uh, solo text and music pieces by like Laurie Anderson think uh, Oh Superman um, which often made innovative even subversive use of electronic technology which we're hearing in a lot of these tracks many downtown artists developed and offered humorous or thought-provoking style of solo performance with conceptualist overtones uh, this coexisted with minimalism and um, Due to a, a lack of funding opportunities, uh, these downtown composers generally perform solo in a solo performance, you know, setting. Then there's also art rock and experimental rock, and that's where we get into like Glenn Branca, uh, Jeffrey Lone, Reese Chatham, uh, DNA groups like Sonic Youth, uh, Live Skull, The Swans. And then uh, from this came the No Wave. Not to be confused with New Wave, came the No Wave movement. And then there's free improvisation, right? Terry Riley, uh, Pauline Oliveros started this um, in the downtown scene in the 80s. And then under the leadership of John Zorn and Elliot Sharp, it kind of took a different turn. So this music celebrating extemporan extemporaneity flourished in a city in which rehearsal space was expensive and difficult to come by and provided an outlet for many jazz trained and jazz centered musicians tired of jazz performance conventions so essentially we are going to we're talking about musicians who may have been trained in the jazz way of thinking you know and like this is a minor scale this is a dorian then you go to mixolydian or you know here's a two five progression etc right the typical how to handle bebop vocabulary standards great american songbook based kind of uh, musician so they were trained in that element but they were wanting more so you probably would not go anywhere in a downtown loft or a downtown performance venue and play blue bossa you would not play Stella by starlight right and if you did it was probably something that you could not recognize you know um, if you did hear it I'm thinking back to like some Derek Bailey stuff and some Mark Rebo stuff but anyway um, so this kind of brings us to the point where I want to talk about the knitting factory because the thing about the knitting factory is that's important is that Wayne Horvitz says in this article that the knitting factory wasn't a white club or a black club and he says I don't mean that just racially I mean that in terms of the music early on in the booking leaned more towards improvised music white kid stuff but that changed very quickly it 
started covering the creative side of great black music, uh, the post-AACM uh, energy, and it covered Sun Ra, Cecil Taylor, William Parker, and that's important to note because Michael Dorff goes on to say that most of the East Village was white, Berkeley-trained type of players, and those mainly came initially from Wayne Horvitz, right, within that downtown scene. But within a few weeks, not months, not years, but a few weeks, word got out that the Knitting Factory was the booking blue chip for avant-garde players. So there were many scenes looking for a place to play. Uh, there was a healthy rock scene already going on at CBGB's. And then the classic jazz crew was playing at Sweet Basil and Village Vanguard. Uh, members of M-Bass, like Greg Osby, who I mentioned before, Steve Coleman, you know, that whole crew were mainly playing in Brooklyn at the time. But the law scene had just finished, you know, that 70s into the early 80s scene had just finished. And then at the same time, Jazz at Lincoln Center with Wynton Marsalis was just starting to take off. So you had all these artists like Cecil Taylor, Henry Threadgill, uh, Ornette Coleman, Max Roach that were out there, but they were on the periphery, right? So Don Byron, who is a con who is just a contemporary clarinetist and saxophonist, but is awesome. If you haven't heard Don Byron's music, just wait, and you should go check out some more Don Byron. He says that the Knitting Factory was less white-centric. He said the more other rocky kind of downtowny venues weren't having jazz-based improvised music. Uh, they weren't having black people, essentially, unless they had no jazz connection. You could play rock in there, but you couldn't go in there and play some standards, which is kind of like what I was saying before. He said the difference with the Knitting Factory was that it didn't really matter what you did stylistically. And Greg Osby kind of backs this up. He said it, the Knitting Factory was a come-as-you-are kind of place. The clientele ranged from surly types to intellectuals to Upper East Side privileged folks to village types. It allowed Osby the opportunity to straddle the fence because along with his peers like Steve Coleman, Jerry Allen, Osby started to work with people who more firmly defined that whole downtown thing. Talking about Tim Byrne, Mark Helius, Jerry Hemingway, Mike Formanic, and Bobby Previtt. People who cut their teeth on extended composition or classical music or even stuff that didn't even have a definition yet. So for Osby to play with white dudes who he would never have probably played with otherwise extended not only his reputation for being open-minded, but also for being able to step into different arenas. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm cherry-picking some things that I really wanted to highlight. Pianist Anthony Coleman, and the reason I'm bringing him up is because Coleman, Anthony Coleman was one of the ones along with John Zorn when they John was discussing that whole radical Jewish culture music that eventually became Masada and a lot of the things uh, that led to that whole opening up of radical Jewish culture music in New York, David Krakauer with Klezmer Madness, and kind of putting them all under one tent, you know what I'm saying? And so... Anthony Coleman was definitely part of this scene here at the Knitting Factory. And he said you could do a gig at Roulette or the Kitchen Club once a year 
if you were lucky. We didn't know we needed a club since we never had a club. But we'd had performance spaces, but we never had a club. So he said it filled a void that we weren't even aware was a void. That's interesting to note, you know. Don Byron says in the 80s, that, which is where we're at with this, 1987, right, uh, when the Knitting Factory opened, he said a lot of the old cats were still alive and playing all the major clubs. So Don Byron, as a clarinetist and a saxophonist, was playing at Sweet Basil with Illinois Jacquet. To a jazz critic at that time, none of the people Byron was playing with would be considered serious jazz unless they were playing with some old guy. For a young musician, the jazz venues were not really an option. So keep that in mind, too. It's not just the fact that the Knitting Factory opened at the right place in the right time with the right crowd. It's also the environment and the economy for the musicians at that time as well. Okay? So, um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, <laughs> was Bill Frizzell. And Bill Frizzell says, people talk about the fact that Paul Motion, Joe Lovano, and I, that great trio, played a lot of the Village Vanguard. But a long time before that trio went into the Vanguard, we played at the Knitting Factory. So it was that experimental that Paul Motion, as legendary as he was, with Joe Lovano and Bill Frizzell were playing at this Knitting Factory club to work out those ideas that were just genius ideas. So, there you go. And I mean, not saying that the Knitting Factory turned away jazz legends. There was a lot of jazz legends that played there. But interspersed with, you know, Glenn Branca and... John Zorn and Wayne Horvitz and the Lounge Lizards. So Marilyn Crispell, who's a great pianist, by the way, she has a great thing with Joe Lovano out on ECM. Um, you should really check it out. Um, says, I remember going to the Knitting Factory and hearing Don Pullen and Hammett Blewett play a duo. So a saxophone and piano duo, which completely blew me away. And she says, I was playing after them. And so after all that incredible music, she said Don Pullen came up to her and apologized for all the blood on the keys. It had been that intense. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah. And John Lurie from the Lounge Lizards, founder of the Jan uh, the Lounge Lizards, saxophonist, who we heard in the first set, he said, just to give you a visual and a appeal to all of your senses, he said that the Knitting Factory smelled like an old carpet. They had no air conditioner. And he said that the Lounge Lizards played there for one week in August when it was like 110 degrees in there. So we brought a canary on the stage to see if it died like coal miners do. The canary didn't die, and that's about as positive a thing as he said he can say about the knitting factory. The canary didn't die. So just to give you an idea of what it kind of smelt like, what it was like, right? Um, Elliot Sharp, great guitarist, 
said that the sound was not even that good. The equipment was not that good. There was a big glass wall facing on the house and street, so you had a lot of reflection from the sound. But you work with what you have, is what he said. He goes, and it's the people who make the scene, not the venue. And that's really important. It's the people that make the scene and not the venue. You can have a world-class million-dollar venue, but if you ain't got the right kind of people to support it, it's not a movement. It's not a scene. So, uh, Stephen Bernstein, who is a great, great trumpet player, uh, leader of Sex Mob, uh, the Millennial Territory Orchestra, uh, and he's also had a lot of great CDs out on Zodic with his own name, uh, was part of the horn section for the Lounge Lizards in the day. And to give you more of an idea of this club, he said that they had a house amp by the window that would pick up all the taxis as they came by. So you'd be playing some quiet improvisation and suddenly you hear in a distorted voice, Car 64, pick up at 54th Street and 6th Avenue. Who's available? <laughs> so, so <laughs> I know it just seems like it'd be like a real shitty place, but um, he said that that was part of the charm, right? So... Um, Joey Barron, who is one of my favorite drummers, and I, I've been lucky enough to meet him, he was one of the ones on that scene as well. And he said, people talk about that quote-unquote scene. He says, I don't really understand the term. For him, Joey Barron, it was a place to play that seemed to be open to experimentation. You didn't have to be a diehard bebopper or a diehard avant-gardist, you know? And that's what was really cool. It was like a welcoming of all. And Anthony Coleman goes on, and this is my last point, and then we're going to get some more music. Anthony Coleman talks about how there was a huge difference between the scene around, say, the Lounge Lizards with John Lurie, the scene around John Zorn, and kind of his followers, and the scene around Glenn Branca that we just heard with Fuck Yourself. <laughs> right? He said there wasn't that much spillover between the older black avant-garde scene around James Blood Ulmer and Henry Threadgill and the scene around Alvin Curran and Musica Electronica Viva. He said at the Knitting Factory, and this is before, he said you had all these kind of different cells, if you will, right? Uh, I'm paraphrasing Anthony Coleman's words here, but he said, you have like your Glenn Bronca scene over here, you know, downtown, and then you have your John Zorn scene over here, and you have the lounge scissor, lounge lizard scene, your uh, Blood Ulmer's, you know, scene, your Henry Threadgill scene, you have your, you know, Alvin Curran, you had all these different, like, cells, but he said at the Knitting Factory, people started collaborating with each other in a way that felt very natural. So you could have a member of the... Uh, Glenn Branca scene play with a member of the Zorn scene or you could have a member of the Henry Threadgill scene play with a member of the Lounge Lizard scene and it felt very cool it was very natural so it was kind of like this common denominator place really if you want to get into it and that's so cool so alright uh <laughs> We're going to get to some more great music. We've got three really cool ones here. We are going to start with the Golden Palominos. Here is Cookout. You're listening to the Dutch Jazz Podcast.
The great Bobby Quine, <coughs> formerly Robert Quine, or, you know, if we're going to be exact here, uh, Robert Quine with Jody Harris, and that is from their album Escape, we heard Up in Daisy's Penthouse. Very interesting. Uh, a note about Bobby Quine, uh, he was an American guitarist. Uh, native of Akron, Ohio, at all places. Um, Bobby Quine worked with wide range of musicians, though he himself remained relatively unknown. Uh, the music critic Mark Deming said, Quine's eclectic style embraced influences from jazz, rock, and blues players of all stripes, and his thoughtful technique and uncompromising approach led to rewarding collaborations with a number of visionary musicians. <coughs> Some of the names that um, you might know, 
that he he collaborated with was Richard Hell on the Void the Void the Voidoids, Lou Reed on the Blue Mask album, Brian Eno, of course John Zorn, uh, Ique More, Mark Rebo, uh, Marianne Faithful from the Strange Weather album, Lloyd Cole, Matthew Sweet, and Tom Waits. Lester Bangs wrote that he was quote a pivotal figure and the first guitarist to take the breakthroughs of early Lou Reed and James Williamson and work through them to a new individual vocabulary driven into odd places by obsessive attention to Miles, da Miles Davis's On the Corner album. Bobby Quine was also ranked 80th by Rolling Stone magazine's David Frick in his list of 100 greatest guitarists. Bobby Quine. There you go. Uh, before that, we heard from the band Negative Land. But that's without the E in the middle at the end of negative. And Negative Land uh, was an experimental band which originated in San Francisco. And the band consists of Mark Holster, David Wills, also known as The Weatherman, Peter Conheim, and John Lidecker, also known as Wobbly. Past members include Ian Allen, Chris Grigg, Don Joyce, and Richard Lyons. Um, they were just an experimental band. They got their name from the NEU band, the new track. And this was one of the bands that was kind of like in the scene, you know what I mean? Just coming through town. So, like I said, the point of this podcast is to give you a soundtrack of what that downtown scene was like. There's so many cells, and so many of them converged at the Knitting Factory. We're just providing an overall um, soundtrack for you, if you will. And, yeah, and that goes to the band that started off the whole set here. We heard Cookout by the Golden Palominos. And the Golden Palominos are an American musical group headed by drummer and composer Anton Fear. And Anton Fear is actually from Cleveland, Ohio. And um, so that's two. There you go. Akron and Cleveland. There you go. Uh, the band was first formed in Cleveland in 1981. But besides Anton Fear, um, the Golden Palominos membership has been wildly elastic. <laughs> with only bassist Bill Laswell from Painkiller fame uh, and guitarist Nicky Scopelitis uh, appearing on every album through 1996. Um, yeah, Bill Laswell, Nicky Scopelitis, Amanda Kramer, Lori Carlson, Knox Chandler, Arto Lindsay, uh, Jody Harris, who we heard with Bobby Quine right there, Sid Straw, Peter Blegvad, Lydia Cavanaugh, Nicole Blackman, Andy Hess, Tony Scher, David Moss, Bernie Worrell, yeah, and Michael Hampton. Uh, while the Palomino's records are usually featured a core set of musicians and a certain emotional continuity throughout the bulk of an album, various guest appearances resulted in stylistic changes from track to track. So what that lets you know is that if you didn't dig Cookout, Listen to some more Golden Palominos because they change after every track. So, there you go. All right. So, I'm not going to give too much 
Um, talking in this break, just going to remind you that you are listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. We are doing a special two-part spotlight on the Knitting Factory in accordance with the downtown New York music scene. Specifically, you know, 1987 to like 1999-ish. You know what I mean? Maybe 2000. Around that time period. So... Uh, we got three great ones coming at you on this one, so don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening. Let's get to some more music. Thank you. 
right. So we started off that set with the gorgeous It Should Have Happened a Long Time Ago. And that was by the trio that I was just telling you about before uh, with Paul Motion on drums, Joe Lovano on tenor saxophone, and the great Bill Frizzell on guitar. And Bill Frizzell had mentioned in this article um, you know, that trio was known for being so uh, loose-knit and yet empathetic. You know, uh, some people associated with Paul Blay may call it uh, the, the free ballad style, if you will, um, that ECM made very famous through Annette Peacock and Paul Blay and that sort of thing. Um but Bill Frizzell, you know, and I'm going to hammer this home, says, you know, this group was famous for going into the Village Vanguard and playing this. But before we did that, we went and played at the Knitting Factory because that was susceptible for that. And, you know, hopefully you're kind of getting this idea of this smelly club with bad equipment, but that was... Um, there and it filled this void for a scene that you know was very come as you are so you could be a part of that gorgeous sound with motion lovano and frizzell or <laughs> you could be james blood ulmer who we heard right after that with blackrock um from his blackrock album you know and he, he was one of the ones that played at the knitting factory as well um or you could be like who we just heard john zorn and you could be with bobby quine on the guitar arto Lindsay on guitar and vocals melvin gibbs on the bass anton fear on the drums carol emmanuel on harps David Weinstein on keyboards and Ned Rothenberger on the bass clarinet and you could play stuff like that as well because what we heard was the end titles from Zorn's Filmworks Volume 1 1986 to 1990 and why did I choose that? A couple of reasons because it's exactly the time period we're talking about right here the infancy of the Knitting Factory. And not just that, Bobby Quine, Arto Lindsay, um, Anton Fear, all those cats were part of the scene that was playing at the Knitting Factory. Michael Dorff and Bob Appel's Knitting Factory. So, yeah, so hopefully you're getting uh, a cool soundtrack and a, and a nice vibe of what this club really was, you know. Um, once this pandemic is over, I really hope that we'll have a m more of a resurgence in stuff like that. People taking chances on really original music and combinations that wouldn't have happened elsewhere. I mean, you got to be hopeful, right? Right. So, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, um, seeing that we uh, talked about some of those cats, let's listen to another great set of music. You are listening to The Knitting Factory, Volume 1. Spotlight on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Don't go anywhere.
Ah, uh, yes, three of my favorite artists. Ah, uh, we just heard Let's Be Adult About It <laughs> by the great Arno Lindsay. And that comes from his Ambitious Lovers group album, Envy. The whole album is just killer. Um, let's talk a little bit about Arno Lindsay. Because this is a name that uh, some of you may have read on a couple of albums, uh, especially if you're uh, kind of within the the Zorn circle or the Lounge Lizard circle. But you've never really uh, maybe delved deep into Ardo Lindsay. Um, first of all, he's still alive. He's still kicking. So you can go to ArtoLindsay.com, A-R-T-O-L-I-N-D-S-A-Y.com. Uh, he's an American guitarist, singer, record producer, experimental composer. Um, yeah, and he has been involved with a lot of groups, not just his own name and the Ambitious Lovers project that we just heard from. Um, he's also part of the Lounge Lizards. He was also part of the Golden Palominos that we heard, and he's also part of the group called DNA. So there you go. Uh, he has a distinctive soft voice and an often noisy, self-taught guitar style consisting almost entirely of extended techniques described by Brian Olenek as, quote, studiedly naive, sounding like the bastard child of Derek Bailey. <laughs> um, he was a part of the Lounge Lizards. And after the Lounge Lizards, Ardo Lindsay and keyboardist Peter Scherer formed the Ambitious Lovers group, influenced by pop music, samba, and bossa nova. In an interview with Bomb Magazine, Ardo said, The whole idea was Al Green and samba. That against this, this against that. Not a blend, a, juxta a juxtaposition. Loud soft. There's no particular point in putting these things together. The point is... What comes out in the end? So the Ambitious Lovers had two albums. They had an album called Greed, and they had an album called Envy. And Let's Be Adult, which we just heard, uh, is a great number. It sounds like so many kind of like indie pop songs that are out now, to be honest with you. And we that came off of the album Envy. Before that, we heard from one of my favorite drummers, Bobby Previtt. And we heard The Arrival. And that comes from his album, Dull Bang, Gushing Sound, Human Shriek. <laughs> um, Bobby Previtt. Um, let's talk about him for a little bit. Because he, he's kind of in the same camp, you know. You may have read his name on a couple of tracks or a couple of albums. But you might not know a lot about Bobby Previtt. He's from Niagara Falls, New York. He's still alive. Uh, he is a drummer, composer, and band leader. Strangely enough, he earned a degree in economics from the University of Buffalo, where he happened to also study percussion. So, he moved to New York in 79 and began professional relationships with John Zorn, Wayne Horvitz, and Elliot Sharp. So, besides Previtt being a force within himself in that downtown scene and at the Knitting Factory. He was also collaborating with major players who were part of the scene and also major players at the Knitting Factory. Elliot Sharp, uh, Wayne Horvitz, who basically was 
the impetus for the whole thing to kind of become the club for the downtown scene. And, of course, John Zorn. So, um, yeah. I mean, he, God, he's really played with a lot of cats. Um, but much of his work is improvisational. You know, there's, by the way, if you're a Zorn fan and you want to dig just a duo kind of sort of sound between Zorn and Bobby Previtt, there is an album called Euclid's Nightmare. It's a great album. It's on the Depth of Field label, and it came out in 1997. So it's, it's super cool. Um, in the 90s, he performed with the Seattle-based improv musical collective Punga, uh, which included Wayne Shorter, I'm sorry, Wayne Horvitz, Skerrick, and Dave Palmer. Uh, Previtt has also collaborated with Jamie Saft as Swami Late Plate. <laughs> and um, there's also the April in New York um, with Jamie Saft and Skerrick live in 2003. He also appeared in the movie Shortcuts, Directed by Robert Altman. So there you go. Uh, Bobby Previtt, he's got lots of great um, albums. Um, just some that I can recommend that are just really great are Pushing the Envelope on Grandma Vision from 1987. Uh, that's the same year as the track and the album that we just heard, Dull Bang, Gushing Sound, Human Shriek. And uh, the name of the track, like I said, to reiterate that we heard was The Arrival. And keep in mind that both of those albums, uh, Pushing the Envelope and Dull Bang Gushing Sound Human Shriek, were the, put out the exact same year that the Knitting Factory started, 1987. So there you go. Uh, Claude's Late Morning in 1988 is another great album. Empty Suits in 1990. Slay the Suitors, 93. Euclid's Nightmare, 97. Lots of great stuff. Downtown Lullaby with Wayne Horvitz, Elliot Sharp, and John Zorn. Killer. Um, yeah, and then he has his own record on Zodic Records, Zorn's label as well, called The 23 Constellations of Jean Miro. Um, yeah, you got to check out some um, Bobby Previtt if you haven't. And then we opened up the set with such a cool band such a cool band it's a band called massacre and we heard surfing from their album out from their album killing time uh massacre was founded in 1980 in new york by guitarist fred frith there you go bassist bill laswell and drummer fred marr as an improvising experimental rock band uh, they performed live for just over a year and recorded the studio album Killing Time in 1981. Frith and Laswell reformed Massacre in 1998 with drummer Charles Hayward and released four more albums, Funny Valentine, Meltdown, Lonely Heart, and Love Me Tender. So, the BBC <laughs> described the band Massacre as, quote, an unholy union of the shadows, Captain Beefheart, Derek Bailey, and Funkadelic. If that doesn't make you want to check out more Massacre, I don't know what will. But the point is, is that this kind of collaboration 
even though Masker never really performed at the Knitting Factory, Frith, Marr, and Laswell did. And the idea that these guys could come together on a stage and collaborate, what we heard with surfing is the idea of something that you might have heard, which is super cool. And that's what we're doing. We're providing the aural soundtrack to this story of the Knitting Factory. So we've got one, two, two more sets coming at you. This set, we're going to start off with a great Anton Fear, the drummer from Cleveland, who we've already talked about. And uh, this track is called Dream Speed. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
Laswell, mm, mm, mm. upright man from 1983's Baselines. Not the way you think. B a s e l i n e s. Bill Laswell, man. Mm. And of course, you know Bill Laswell is uh, relatively well known today, but um, he's an incredible producer, a great bass player. He's also, um, God, there's tons of stuff that he's done, but for this circle, you know, he's don't forget that besides having his own albums, he's also been, you know, a part of some of the bands like massacre that we just heard. Uh, he's also part of painkiller with John Zorn and Mick Harris. Um, yeah. And like I said, 
you know, this is a great time to bring this up again because there is an incredible, incredible, incredible article. And it's lengthy, so don't go to it if you've only got like five minutes to read, you know. <coughs> but um, there's this article by Hank Steamer in Rolling Stone magazine uh, called He Made the World Bigger Inside John Zorn's Jazz Metal Multiverse. And he talks about how, um, God, just the, the, the collaborations with Dave Lombardo from Slayer and Mike Patton from I don't know, um, Faith No More, Mr. Bungle fame, uh, Trey Spruance, all these cats, uh, Lori Anderson, uh, Bill Laswell, you know, Mick Harris from Napalm Death. Uh, John Medeski from Medeski Martin Wood. All these cats are within the Zorn universe, the Zorn community, and um, that that first great Painkiller album with Mick Harris and Bill Laswell was on, you know, um, Guts of a Virgin and uh, Buried Secrets. Uh, it, there was no real rehearsing, you know, it was, uh, everybody kind of knew each other. Well, everybody knew Zorn. So there was, uh, the relationship between Bill Laswell and Zorn. And then there was a relationship between McCarris and Zorn. Um, and just a lot of respect, common respect among everybody. But the idea is that, you know, Mick was in town. He had, he had, uh, came to New York. And um, someone said, well, let's just go in the studio, you, me, and, and, and Bill. You know, and he's like, Bill, Mick, Mick, Bill. All right, let's put some cans on. Let's get it going. Let's reco start recording. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Um, and the rest is history. It's magic, you know. So, And, of course, Bill and, and, and John have been very close for, for years and years and years. Um, and they've had a, a lot of different configurations of the painkiller group uh most notably Hammond drake sitting in for in the drum chair with bill and john for a painkiller trio performance and mike Patton coming in on vocals for zorn's 50th birthday celebration the painkiller album and it's just it's it's awesome it really is um so yeah we should all remember uh painkiller for what it is you know and Bill Aswell, you know, he's just, he's a killer bass player, a killer producer, and he, he's uh, just one of those empathetic musicians that really listens well, you know, can't be overstated enough. So we heard the track Upright Man, it's funky, it's cool, and for 1983, right, that's might be, that, what we just heard there might be something that you would have heard at the Knitting Factory. Before that, we heard from the William Parker Quartet. Uh, we heard the track Purple. And uh, that comes from William Parker's O'Neill's Porch album. Um, and like I said, we mentioned William Parker being one of the the, the musicians that's kind of got one foot in experimental music and another foot in jazz. Um, being one of the guys that Michael Dorff and Bob Appel would call saying, hey, who is Dewey Redman? Should we book this guy? 
<laughs> you remember? And, uh, you know, it was William Parker's generosity and, you know, brotherhood towards jazz musicians, especially, you know, experimental ones like Dewey and James Blood Ulmer and cats like that saying, hey, look, if they look like a musician, give them a gig, especially if they're an older one. I mean, that's good karma, right? So, uh, Purple, one of my absolute favorite tracks from the William Parker Quartet. And that may have been something uh, in its early infancy that you may have heard at The Knitting Factory. And then we started off the album, or I'm sorry, we started off the set with uh, Anton Fears' Dream Speed from his Dream Speed album. Anton Fear, great drummer from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we talked about him a little bit already. So, <clears throat> and he has had plenty of great collaborations with um, with John Zorn as well. So, there you go. Um, all right, so we got one more great set coming at you. Uh, it's 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 there's lots of stuff here. So, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we do love you madly. Let's get to this last funky set of music. Remember, this is part one of two of our spotlight on the original Knitting Factory. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
gonna dance, won't party. I wanna get down tonight with the default. I wanna dance, won't party, hearty. Wanna get down tonight with the default. I wanna dance, wanna party, hearty. Wanna get down tonight with the default. I wanna dance, I wanna party, hearty. Wanna get down tonight.
close enough to tell you that the way you look at me is what's keeping me silent. I live for you, but you want me to drop dead. I live for you, but you want me to drop dead. So the, that applause that you hear, that is live at the Knitting Factory. And we bookended that set with two live at the Knitting Factory tracks. The first thing that we heard was Decomposer by a Neck by the Jazz Passengers. And the Jazz Passengers are an American jazz group uh, founded by saxophonist Roy Nathanson who we've talked about from this Knitting Factory article, and trombonist Curtis Folks, and they founded the Jazz Passengers in 1987, the same time that the Knitting Factory opened. Um, the band grew out of a partnership between Nathanson and Folks after the two had played in John Lurie's band, The Lounge Lizards, which we heard as well. Uh, other regular members included vibraphonist Bill Ware, bassist Brad Jones, drummer E.J. Rodriguez, as well as Mark Rebo, David Fujinski, uh, 
played in earlier versions of the group. They've also had Stephen Bernstein. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Uh, they've also collaborated with um, vocal co uh, contributions from Deborah Harry from Blondie, who is very much a part of the scene at CBGB's. Jeff Buckley, Jimmy Scott, Bob DeRoe, and Mavis Staples. Um, they even had uh, a track, two tracks with Elvis Costello. So there you go. Um, after that, we heard the band Defunct with the track <laughs> Defunct. And Defunct is a American funk band founded by trombonist and singer Joseph Bowie in 1978, and they're still active today. Uh, their music touches on elements of punk, rock, funk, and jazz. Uh, members include Joseph Bowie, Kim Clark, Ronnie Drayton, Bill Bickford, John Mulkerin, and Kenny Martin. Defunct merge avant-garde aesthetics with punk rock and funk and have produced 20 albums on various independent labels and has opened up for bands they, the band has opened up for acts such as James Brown, David Byrne, Talking Heads, The Clash, Hans Dolfer, Candy Dolfer, Isaac Hayes, Larry Graham, Michelle Nadigacello, Maceo Parker, and none other than Prince. And then we ended the set with what I really feel is like a downtown knitting factory supergroup. We have Joey Barron on the drums. We had Fred Frith on the bass. We have Wayne Horvitz, who started the whole scene at the Knitting Factory on keyboards. Bill Frizzell on guitar, and none other than John Zorn on the alto saxophone. And composer, leader of the group, Naked City. Truly is a downtown supergroup, and we heard Batman live at the Knitting Factory, 1989. And their album, Naked City, Naked City, turns 30 this year. 30 years ago, that album came out, and it still today sounds just as fresh as what it did then. So, hopefully you enjoyed it. Remember, this is part one of a two-part spotlight on The Knitting Factory. And part two will be up soon. And, um, yeah, we would love you all madly. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you dug it and got a great vibe about the original Knitting Factory. So, stay tuned for part two, and until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust.